On this occasion, it was something more than a divine message which was communicated to the prophet's ear, being nothing less than a visit from a divine person which the prophet now received. It was none other than the second person of the Trinity, the eternal word, John 1.1, who now interrogated the erring Tishbite. This is unmistakably clear from the next clause. And he, capital H, said unto him, Very remarkable, very solemn is this. And he said unto him, What doest thou here, Elijah? Verse 9. Elijah had turned aside from the path of duty, and his master knew it. The living God knows where his servants are, what they are doing and not doing. None can escape his omniscient gaze, for his eyes are in every place. Proverbs 15.3 The Lord's question was a rebuke, a searching word addressed to his conscience. As we do not know what particular word the Lord accentuated, we will emphasize each one separately. What doest thou? Is it good or evil? For totally inactive, in either mind or body, man cannot be. What doest thou? Art thou employing thy time for the glory of God and the good of his people? Or is it being wasted in peevish repinings? What doest thou? Thou who art the servant of the Most High, who hast been so highly honored, who hast received such clear tokens of his aid and depended upon the Almighty for protection, what dost thou hear? Away from the land of Israel, away from the work of reformation. And he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant, thrown down thine altars, and slain thy prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. Verse 10 As we ponder these words, we find ourselves out of accord with the commentators, most of whom severely criticized the prophet for seeking to excuse himself and throw the blame on others. That which impresses the writer first is the honesty of Elijah. There were no evasions and equivocations, but a frank and candid explanation of his conduct. True, what he here advanced furnished no sufficient reason for his flight, yet it was the truthful declaration of an honest heart. Well for both writer and reader, if he can always give a good account of himself when challenged by the Holy One. If we were as open and frank with the Lord as Elijah was, we could expect to be dealt with as graciously as he was. For note it well, the prophet received no rebuke from God in answer to his outspokenness. I have been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts was a statement of fact. He had not shrunk from the most difficult and dangerous servants for his master and his people. It was not because his zeal had cooled that he had fled from Jezreel. For the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant, thrown down thine altars, and slain thy prophets with the sword. Elijah had been deeply distressed to behold how grievously the Lord was dishonored by the nation which was called by his name. God's glory lay very near his heart, and it affected him deeply to see his laws broken, his authority flouted, his worship despised, the homage of the people given to senseless idols, and their tacit consent to the murder of his servants. And I, even I only, am left. He had, at imminent peril of his life, labored hard to put a stop to Israel's idolatry and to reclaim the nation, but to no purpose. So far as he could perceive, he had labored in vain and spent his strength for naught. And they seek my life to take it away. 
What then is the use of my wasting any more time on such a stiff-necked and unresponsive people? Chapter 27 A Still Small Voice And he said, Go forth and stand upon the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind rent the mountains, and break in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still small voice. 1 Kings 19, verse 11 and 12. Elijah was now called upon to witness a most remarkable and awe-inspiring display of God's power. The description which is here given of the scene, though brief, is so graphic that any words of ours would only serve to blunt its forcefulness. What we desire to do is rather to ascertain the meaning and message of this sublime manifestation of God, its message to Elijah, to Israel, and to ourselves. Oh, that our eyes may be anointed to discern, our hearts so affected as to appreciate, our thoughts controlled by the Holy Spirit, and our pen directed unto the glory of the Most High and the blessing of his dear people. In seeking to discover the spiritual significance of what the prophet here witnessed upon the mount, we must ponder the scene in connection with what has preceded it, both in the history of Israel and in the experience of Elijah himself. Then we must consider it in relation to what immediately follows, for there is undoubtedly a close connection between the startling scenes depicted in verses 11 and 12 and the solemn message contained in verses 15 to 18, the latter serving to interpret the former. Finally, we need to examine this striking incident in the light of the analogy of faith, the scriptures as a whole, for one part of them serves to explain another. It is as we become better acquainted with the ways of God, as revealed in his word, that we are able to enter more intelligently into the meaning of his acts. Psalm 103, 7. How then are we to consider this manifestation of God upon the mount with regard to Elijah himself? First, as the Lord's dealing with him in grace. This should be evident from the context. There we have seen the touching response which God made to his servant's failure. So far from forsaking him in his hour of weakness and need, the Lord had ministered most tenderly to him, exemplifying that precious promise, like as a father pitieth his children, so the Lord pitieth them that fear him. Psalm 103:13. And Elijah did fear the Lord, and though his faith was for the moment eclipsed, the Lord did not turn his back upon him on that account. Sleep was given to him, an angel supplied him with food and drink. Supernatural strength was communicated to his frame, so that, so that he was enabled to do without any further nourishment for forty days and nights. And when he reached the cave, Christ himself, the eternal word, had stood before him in theophanic manifestation. What high favors were those? What proofs that we have to do with one who is the God of all grace? Of what has just been pointed out, it may be said, true, but then Elijah slighted that grace. Instead of being suitably affected thereby, he remained petulant and peevish. Instead of confessing his failure, he attempted to justify the forsaking of his post of duty. Even so, then what? Why does not the Lord here teach the refractory prophet a needed lesson? Does he not appear before him in a terrifying manner for the purpose of rebuking him? 
Not so do we read this incident. Those who take such a view must have little experimental acquaintance with the wondrous grace of God. He is not fickle and variable as we are. He does not at one time deal with us according to his own compassionate benignity and at another treat us according to our ill deserts. When God begins to deal in grace with one of his elect, he continues dealing with him in grace, and nothing in the creature can impede the outflow of his loving kindness. One cannot examine the wonders which occurred here on Horeb without seeing in them an intended reference to the awful solemnities of Sinai with its thunderings and lightnings. When the Lord descended upon it in fire, and the whole mount quaked greatly, Exodus 19, verse 16 and 18. Yet we miss the force of the illusion unless we heed carefully the words. The Lord was not in the wind. The Lord was not in the earthquake. The Lord was not in the fire. God was not dealing with Elijah on the ground of the legal covenant. That threefold negative is the Spirit speaking to us. Elijah had not come unto the mount that might be touched and that burned with fire, nor unto blackness and darkness and tempest. Hebrews 12.18 Rather was the prophet addressed by the still small voice, which was plain intimation that he had come unto Mount Zion. Hebrews 12.22 The Mount of Grace That Jehovah should reveal himself thus to Elijah was a mark of divine favor, conferring upon him the same sign of distinction which he had vouchsafed unto Moses in that very place when he showed him his glory and made his goodness pass before him. Second, the method which the Lord chose to take with his servant on this occasion was designed for his instruction. Elijah was dejected at the failure of his mission. He had been jealous for the Lord God of hosts and what had come of all his zeal. He had prayed as probably none before him had ever prayed. Yet though miracles had been wrought in answer thereto, that which lay nearest to his heart had not been attained. Ahab had been quite unaffected by what he had witnessed. The nation was not reclaimed unto God. Jezebel was as defiant as ever. Elijah appeared to be entirely alone, and his utmost effects were unavailing. The enemy still triumphed in spite of all. The Lord, therefore, sets before his servant an object lesson. By solemn exhibitions of his mighty power, he impressively reminds Elijah that he is not confined to any one agent in carrying out his designs. The elements are at his disposal when he is pleased to employ them, a gentler method and milder agent if such be his will. It was quite natural that Elijah should have formed the conclusion that the whole work was to be done by himself, coming as he did with all the vehemence of a mighty wind that under God all obstacles would be swept away, idolatry abolished, and the nation brought back to the worship of Jehovah. The Lord now graciously makes known unto the prophet that he has other arrows in his quiver, which he will discharge in due time. The wind, the earthquake, the fire, should each play their appointed part, and thereby make way more distinctly and effectively for the milder ministry of the still small voice. Elijah was but one agent among several. One soweth and another reapeth. John 4.37 Elijah had performed his part and soon would he be grandly rewarded for his faithfulness. Nor had he labored in vain. Yet another man and not himself should enter into his labors. 
how gracious of the Lord thus to take his servants into his confidence. Surely the Lord God will do nothing, but he revealeth his secret unto his servants the prophets. Amos 3.7 This is exactly what occurred there on Horeb. By means of what we may term a panoramic parable, God revealed the future unto Elijah. Herein we may discover the bearing of this remarkable incident upon Israel. In the immediate sequel, we find the Lord bidding Elijah anoint Hazael over Syria, Jehu over Israel, and Elisha prophet in his own room, assuring him that it shall come to pass, that him that escapeth the sword of Hazael shall Jehu slay, and him that escapeth from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha slay. Verse 17. In the work of those men we may perceive the prophetic meaning of the solemn phenomena Elijah beheld. They were symbols of the dire calamities with which God would punish the apostate nation. Thus the strong wind was a figure of the work of judgment which Hazael performed on Israel when he set their strongholds on fire and slew their young men with the sword. 2 Kings 8.12 The earthquake of the revolution under Jehu when he utterly destroyed the house of Ahab, 2 Kings 9, 7-10, and the fire, the work of judgment completed by Elisha. Third, the incident as a whole was designed for the consolation of Elijah. Terrible indeed were the judgments which would fall upon guilty Israel. Yet in wrath Jehovah would remember mercy. The chosen nation would not be utterly exterminated, and therefore did the Lord graciously assure his despondent servant Yet will I leave me seven thousand in Israel, all the knees which have not bowed unto Baal, and every mouth which has not kissed him. Verse 18 As the strong wind, the earthquake, and the fire were emblematic portents of the judgments which God was shortly to send upon his idolatrous people, so the still small voice which followed them looked forward to the mercy he had in store after his strange work had been accomplished. For we read that after Hazael had oppressed Israel all the days of Jehoahaz, the Lord was gracious unto them and had respect unto them because of his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and would not destroy them. Neither cast he them from his presence as yet. 2 Kings 13.23 Once again we say, How gracious of the Lord to make known unto Elijah things to come, and thus acquaint him with what should be the sequel to his labors. If we consider the remarkable occurrences of Horeb in the light of the scriptures as a whole, we shall find they were indicative and illustrative of one of the general principles in the divine government of this world. The order of the divine manifestations before Elijah was analogous to the general tenor of the divine proceedings. Whether it be with regard to a people or an individual, it is usual for the bestowment of divine mercies to be preceded by awe-inspiring displays of God's power and displeasure against sin. First the plagues upon Egypt, and the destruction of Pharaoh and his hosts at the Red Sea, and then the deliverance of the Hebrews. The majesty and might of Jehovah exhibited on Sinai, and then the blessed proclamation, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering, and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Exodus 34, verse 6 and 7. Fourth, the method followed by the Lord on this occasion was meant to furnish Elijah for further service. 
the still small voice, speaking quietly and gently, was designed to calm and soothe his ruffled spirit. It evidenced afresh the kindness and tenderness of the Lord, who would assuage Elijah's disappointment and cheer his heart. Where the soul is reassured of his master's love, the servant is nerved to face fresh dangers and oppositions for his sake and to tackle any task he may assign him. It was thus also he dealt with Isaiah, first abasing him with a vision of his glory, which made the prophet conscious of his utter sinfulness and insufficiency, and then assuring him of the remission of his sins. And in consequence, Isaiah went forward on a most thankless mission. Isaiah 6, verses 1-12 through 12. The sequel here shows the Lord's measures were equally effective with Elijah. He received a fresh commission, and obediently he discharged it. And it was so when Elijah heard it, that he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out, and stood in the entering in of the cave. Verse 13. This is remarkable. So far as we can gather from the inspired record, Elijah stood unmoved at the very displays of Jehovah's power, fearful as they were to behold, surely a clear intimation that his conscience was not burdened by guilt. But when the still small voice sounded, he was at once affected. The Lord addressed his servant not in an angry and austere manner, but with gentleness and tenderness to show him what a compassionate and gracious God he had to do with, and his heart was touched. The Hebrew word for still is the one employed in Psalm 107.29, He maketh the storm a calm. The wrapping of his face in his mantle betokened two things, his reverence for the divine majesty and a sense of his own unworthiness as the seraphim are represented as covering their faces in the Lord's presence. Isaiah 6, 2 and 3 When Abraham found himself in the presence of God, he said, I am dust and ashes. Genesis 18 When Moses beheld him in the burning bush, he hid his face. Exodus 3 Many and profitable are the lessons for us in this remarkable incident. First from it we may perceive it is God's way to do the unexpected. Were we to put it to vote as to which they thought the more likely, for the Lord to have spoken to Elijah through the mighty wind and earthquake or the still small voice, we suppose the great majority would say the former. And is it not much the same in our own spiritual experience? We earnestly beg him to grant us a more definite and settled assurance of our acceptance in Christ, and then look for his answer in a sort of electric shock imparted to our souls, or in an extraordinary vision, when instead it is by the still small voice of the Spirit bearing witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Again we beseech the Lord that we may grow in grace, and then expect his answer in the form of more conscious enjoyment of his presence, whereas he quietly gives us to see more of the hidden depravity of our hearts. Yes, God often does the unexpected in his dealings with us. Second, the preeminence of the word. Reduced to a single word, we may say that the varied phenomena witnessed by Elijah upon the mount were a matter of the Lord speaking to him. When it is said the Lord was not in the wind, the earthquake, and the fire, we are to understand it was not through them he addressed himself to the prophet's heart. Rather was it by the still small voice. In regarding this last agent as the emblem of the word, we find confirmation in the striking fact that the Hebrew word for small 
is the self-same one used in a small round thing in Exodus 16:14. And we need hardly add, the manna whereby the Lord fed Israel in the wilderness was a type of the food he has provided for our souls. Though the wondrous wisdom and potent power of God are displayed in creation, yet it is not through nature that God may be understood and known, but through the word applied by his Spirit. Third, in the phenomena of the mount we may perceive a striking illustration of the vivid contrast between the law and the gospel. The rock-rending wind, the earthquake, and the fire figured the terror-producing law, as may be seen from their presence at Sinai. But the still small voice was a fit emblem of the gospel of peace, which soothes the troubled breast. As the plow and the harrow are necessary in order to break up the hard earth and prepare it for the seed, so a sense of the majesty, holiness, and wrath of God is the means which prepares us to appreciate truly his grace and love. The careless must be awakened, the soul made sensible of its danger, the conscience convicted of the sinfulness of sin, ere there is a turning unto God and fleeing from the wrath to come. Yet those experiences are not saving ones. They do but prepare the way, as the ministry of John the Baptist fitted men to behold the Lamb of God. Fourth, thus we may see in this incident a figure of God's ordinary manner of dealing with souls, for it is customary for him to use the law before the gospel. In spite of much which is now said to the contrary, this writer still believes that it is usual for the spirit to wound before he heals to shake the soul over hell before he communicates a hope of heaven, to bring the heart to despair before it is brought to Christ. Self-complacency has to be rudely shattered and the rags of self-righteousness torn off if a sense of deep need is to fill the heart. The Hebrews had to come under the whip of their masters and to be made to groan in the brick kilns before they longed to be delivered from Egypt. A man must know himself to be utterly lost before he will crave salvation. The wind and fire must do their work before we can appreciate the joyful sound. Psalm 89.15 Sentence of death has to be written upon us ere we turn to Christ for life. Fifth, this is often God's method of answering prayer. Christians are very apt to look for God to respond to their petitions with striking signs and spectacular wonders. And because these are not given in a marked and permanent form, they conclude he needs them not. But the presence and power of God are not to be gauged by abnormal manifestations and extraordinary visitations. The wonders of God are rarely wrought with noise and vehemence. Whose ear can detect the falling of dew? Vegetation grows silently, but nonetheless surely. In grace, as in nature, God usually works gently, softly, unperceived, except through the effects produced. The greatest fidelity and devotion to God are not to be found where excitement and sensationalism hold forth. The blessing of the Lord attends the unobtrusive and persevering use of his appointed means, which attracts not the attention of the vulgar and carnal. Sixth, this scene on Horeb contains a timely message for preachers. How many ministers of the gospel have become thoroughly discouraged, though with far less provocation than Elijah? They have been untiring in their labors, zealous for the Lord, faithful in preaching his word, yet nothing comes of it. There is no response. All appears to be in vain. 
Even so, granted that such be the case, then what? Seek to lay hold afresh on the grand truth that the purpose of the Lord shall not fail, and that purpose includes tomorrow as well as today. The Most High is not confined to any one agent. Elijah thought the whole work was to be accomplished through his instrumentality, but was taught that he was only one factor among several. Do your duty where God has stationed you. Plow up the fallow ground and sow the seed, and though there be no fruit in your day, who knows but Elisha may follow you and do the reaping. Seventh, there is a solemn warning here to the unsaved. God will not be mocked with impunity. Though he be long-suffering, there is a limit to his patience. Those who improve not the day of their visitation and opportunity under the ministry of Elijah were made to feel what a terrible thing it is to flout the divine warnings. Mercy was followed by judgment, drastic and devastating. The strongholds of Israel were overthrown and their young men slain by the sword. Is this to be the awful fate of the present generation? Is it devoted by God to destruction? It looks more and more like it. The masses are given up to a spirit of madness. The most solemn portents of the approaching storm are blatantly disregarded. The words of God's servants fall upon deaf ears. O oh, my unsaved readers, flee to Christ without further delay, ere the flood of God's wrath engulfs you. Chapter 28 Elijah's Recovery The failure of Elijah had been of a different character from that of Jonah. It does not appear that he had done any moral wrong in quitting Jezreel. Rather was his conduct in line with Christ's direction to his disciples. But when they persecute you in this city, flee ye into another. Matthew 10.23 They were not to expose themselves rashly to danger, but if they could do so honorably, avoid it and thus preserve themselves for a future service. As numbers of our reformers and members of their flocks took refuge on the continent in the days of wicked Queen Mary, God had given Elijah no express order to remain at Jezreel and continue the work of reformation. And where there is no law, there is no transgression. Romans 4.15 It was more a case of the Lord's testing his servant with circumstances, leaving him to himself to show us what was in his heart, allowing him to exercise his own judgment and follow his own inclinations. Had there been something more involved than this, had the prophet been guilty of deliberate disobedience, the Lord's dealings with him at Horeb would have been quite different from what they were. What has been said above is not for the purpose of excusing Elijah, but to view his fault in a fair perspective. Some have unfairly magnified his failure, charging him with that which cannot justly be laid to his account. We certainly believe he made a lamentable mistake in deserting the post of duty to which the hand of the Lord had brought him, 1 Kings 18.46, for he received no word from his master to leave there. Nor can we justify his petulancy under the juniper tree and his request for the Lord to take away his life. That is for him to decide, and not for us at any time. Moreover, the question put to him twice at Horeb, What dost thou hear, Elijah? evidently implied a gentle rebuke. Yet it was more an error of judgment which he had committed than a sin of the heart. He had felt at liberty to exercise his own discretion and to act according to the dictates of his own feelings. God permitted this that we might know the strongest characters 
are as weak as water the moment he withdraws his upholding hand. We have already seen how tenderly Jehovah dealt with his erring servant in the wilderness. Let us now admire the grace he exercised toward him at Horeb. That which is to be before us reminds us much of the psalmist's experience. The Lord, who was his shepherd, had not only made him to lie down in green pastures, but he restoreth my soul. 23, verse 2 and 3, he acknowledged. The one who had refreshed and fed his servant under the juniper tree now recovers him from his useless repinings, reclaims him from his wanderings, and raises him to a position of honor in his service. Elijah was incapable of restoring himself, and there was no human being who could have delivered him from the sloth of despond. So when there was none other eye to pity him, the Lord had compassion upon him. And is it not thus, at some time or other, in the experience of all God's servants and people? He who first delivered us from a horrible pit continues to care for us, and when we wander from him, he restores our souls and leads us back into the paths of righteousness. And the Lord said unto him, Go, return on thy way to the wilderness of Damascus. 1 Kings 19.15 The prophet was bemoaning the failure of all his efforts to glorify God and the obstinate determination of his people to continue in their apostasy. It was thus he spent his time in the cave at Horeb, brooding over his disappointment and lashing himself by reflecting upon the conduct of the people. A solitary place with nothing to do might be congenial with such a disposition. It might foster it, but would never heal it. And thus Elijah might have succumbed to a settled melancholy or raving madness. The only hope for persons in such circumstances is to come out from their lonely haunts and to be actively employed in some useful and benevolent occupation. This is the best cure for melancholy, to set about doing something which will require muscular exertion and which will benefit others. Hence God directed Elijah to quit this present lonely abode, which only increased the sadness and irritation of his spirit. And so he gave him a commission to execute a long way off. John Simpson And the Lord said unto him, Go, return on thy way to the wilderness of Damascus. Verse 15 This is the course God takes when he restores the soul of one of his erring people, causing him to retrace his steps and return to the place of duty. When Elijah left Egypt, whither he had gone down in the time of famine, Genesis 12.10, we read that he went on his journeys from the south even to Bethel, unto the place where his tent had been at the beginning. Genesis 13.3 When the church at Ephesus left her first love, Christ's message to her was, Remember from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works. Revelation 2.4 So now Elijah is required to go back the way he had come, through the wilderness of Arabia, which was part of the course he would traverse on his way to Damascus. This is still God's word to his strayed sheep. Return, thou backsliding Israel, saith the Lord. I will not cause mine anger to fall upon you, for I am merciful. Jeremiah 3.12 When Peter repented for his great sin, the Lord not only forgave him, but recommissioned his servant. Feed my sheep. John 21.16 so here the Lord not only restored the prophet's soul, but appointed him to fresh work in his service. And when thou comest, anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. 
Verse 15 This was a high honor for Jehovah to confer upon Elijah, such as he had bestowed upon Samuel. 1 Samuel 16.13 How gracious is our God! How patiently he bears with our infirmities! Observe how these passages teach that it is not by the people, but by God that kings reign. Proverbs 8.15 There is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God, and therefore does he require of us, let every soul be subject unto the higher powers. Romans 13.1 In this democratic age, it is necessary that ministers of the gospel should present this truth. Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether it be to the king as supreme, or unto governors as unto them that are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers. 1 Peter 2 13 and 14 said the apostle to Titus put them in mind to be subject to principalities and powers to obey magistrates chapter 3 verse 1 and Jehu the son of Nimshi shall thou anoint to be king over Israel verse 16 none can reign except those whom God makes kings and they only so long as he pleases this anointing or unction proclaimed their divine designation to this office and the qualification with which they should be endowed for their work. The Lord Jesus, who was anointed with the Holy Spirit, Acts 10.38, united in himself the offices of prophet, priest, and king, the only persons ordered to be anointed in the scriptures. Infidels have raised an objection against our present verse by pointing out that Jehu was anointed not by Elijah, but by a young prophet under the direction of Elisha, 2 Kings 9, verse 1 through 6. This objection may be disposed of in two ways. First, Jehu may have been anointed twice, as David was, 1 Samuel 16:13 and 2 Samuel 2, 4. Or, as Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself baptized not but his disciples, John 4, 1 and 2, so Jehu is said to be anointed by Elijah because what took place in 2 Kings 9 was according to his orders. And Elisha, the son of Saphat, of Abel-Menholah, shall thou anoint to be prophet in thy room. Verse 16. Here was an additional favor bestowed upon Elijah, that he should have the almost unique honor of ordaining his successor. That which had so quenched the Tishbite spirit was the failure which attended his efforts. No impression seemed to be made on the idolatrous nation. He alone appeared to be concerned about the glory of the Lord God, and now his life was imperiled. How his heart must have been comforted by the divine assurance that another was appointed to carry on the mission he had prosecuted so zealously. Hitherto there had been none to help him, but in the hour of his despondency God provides him with a suitable companion and successor. It has ever been a great consolation to godly ministers and their flocks to think that God will never lack instruments to conduct his work, that when they are removed, others will be brought forward to carry on. One of the saddest and most solemn features of this degenerate age is that the ranks of the righteous are so depleted and scarcely any are being raised up to fill their places. It is this which makes the outlook doubly dark. And it shall come to pass that him that escapeth the sword of Hazael shall Jehu slay, and him that escapeth from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha slay.
verse 17. Elijah had wrought faithfully, but Israel had to be dealt with by other agents too. The three men whom he was bidden to anoint would in their turn bring down judgment upon the land. God was infinitely more jealous of his own honor than his servant could be, and he would by no means desert his cause or suffer his enemies to triumph as the prophet feared. But mark the variety of the instruments which God was pleased to employ. Hazael, king of Syria, Jehu, the rude captain of Israel, and Elisha, a young farmer. Great differences here. And yet each one was needed for some special work in connection with that idolatrous people at that time. Ah, the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of thee, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of thee. 1 Corinthians 12.21 Yet as some of the smaller and frailer members of the body perform the most useful and essential offices, so it is often by the most unlettered and apparently unqualified men that God accomplishes the chief exploits of his kingdom. We may also perceive here how God exercises his high sovereignty in the instruments he employs. Neither Hazael nor Jehu was a pious man. The former came to the throne by foully murdering his predecessor, 2 Kings 8.15, while of the latter we read, But Jehu took no heed to walk in the law of the Lord God of Israel with all his heart for he departed not from the sins of Jeroboam, 2 Kings 10.31. It is often his way to make use of wicked men to thrash those who have enjoyed but spurned particular favors at his hands. It is indeed remarkable how the Most High accomplishes his purpose through men whose only thought is to gratify their own evil lusts. True, their sin is neither diminished nor condoned because they are executing the decrees of heaven, Indeed, they are held fully accountable for the evil, yet they do only that which God's hand and counsel determined before to be done, serving as his agent to inflict judgment upon his apostate people. And it shall come to pass that him that escapeth the sword of Hazael shall Jehu slay, and him that escapeth from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha slay. Unspeakably solemn is this though God bears with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction, yet there is a limit to his patience. He that being often reproved hardeneth his neck shall suddenly be destroyed, and that without remedy. Proverbs 29.1 Long had God endured that horrible insult to his majesty, but the worshippers of Baal should shortly discover that his wrath was as great as his power. They had been faithfully warned, for three and a half years there had been a fearful drought and famine upon their land. A notable miracle had been wrought on Carmel, but only a fleeting impression had been made on the people. And now God announces that the sword shall do its fearful work, not mildly, but thoroughly, until the land was completely purged of this great evil. And this is placed on record for all succeeding generations to ponder. The Lord has not changed. Even as we write, his judgments are upon most of the world. Oh, that the nations may heed his voice, ere it be too late. Yet I will leave me seven thousand in Israel, all the knees which have not bowed unto Baal, and every mouth which hath not kissed him. Verse 18. On this verse we shall take decided exception to the interpretation given by the great majority of the commentators, who see it in a divine rebuke, unto the prophet's dark pessimism, supposing it was God's reply to his despondent, I only am left, 
when in reality there was a multitude in Israel who refused to join in the general idolatry. For several reasons we cannot accept any such view. Is it thinkable that there could actually be thousands in Israel who remain loyal to Jehovah and yet the prophet be totally unaware of their existence? It is not surprising to find one writer of note saying that it has often been a subject of wonder to me how those 7,000 secret disciples could keep so close as to be unknown by their great leader. A tar of roses will always betray its presence, hide it as we may. But he creates his own difficulty. Moreover, such a view is quite out of harmony with the context. Why, after bestowing honor upon the prophet, should the Lord suddenly reprove him? The careful reader will observe that the marginal reading opposite, yet I have left me seven thousand, is, yet I will leave me seven thousand. The Hebrew allows for either, but we must prefer the latter, for it not only removes the difficulty of Elijah's ignorance, which the former necessarily involves, but it accords much better with the context. The Lord was graciously comforting his despondent servant. First the Lord informed the prophet that another should take his place and carry on his mission. Next he declared he was by no means indifferent to the horrible situation, but would shortly make quick of it in judgment. And now he assures him that though summary judgment should be visited upon Israel, yet he would not make a full end of them, but would preserve a remnant for himself. Nor does Romans 11.4 in any wise conflict with this, providing we change the word answer to oracle, as the Greek requires. For God was not replying to an objection, but making known to Elijah things to come. It will thus be seen that we take an entirely different view from the popular interpretation, not only of verse 18, but of the whole passage. Every writer we have consulted regards these verses as expressing the Lord's displeasure against the refractory servant, that he dealt with him in judgment, setting him aside from the honored position he had occupied by appointing Elisha in his stead. But apart from the gentle rebuke implied in his question, What doest thou here, Elijah? There is nothing to signify the Lord's displeasure, but much to the contrary. Rather do we regard these verses as a record of God's comforting answer to the prophet's despondency. Elijah felt that the forces of evil had triumphed. The Lord announces that the worship of Baal should be utterly destroyed. Verses 17 and also 2 Kings 10 verses 25 through 28. Elijah grieved because he only was left. And the Lord declares, I will leave me 7,000 in Israel. So desperate was the situation, they sought to take the life of Elijah. The Lord promises that Elisha shall complete his mission. Thus did Jehovah most tenderly silence his fears and reassure his heart. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb 
at swrb.com by phone at 780-450-3730 by fax at 780-468-1096 or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.